Hi again. Welcome back to the Scandinavian History Podcast with me, Michael Schenkman. Before we begin today, I'd like to ambush all of you who usually stop listening as soon as the outro music starts to play. If you enjoy listening to the show and would like some more Scandinavian history content in your lives, then I recommend that you like and follow the Facebook page, facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. Via the Facebook page, you can also send me questions or angry emails about things I've said or not said on the show. Another convenient way to get in touch is Twitter. You can follow me and send me messages at Schenkman. That's S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. Also, don't hesitate to share your positive experiences listening to the show by reviewing the Scandinavian History Podcast on Apple Podcasts or any other platform that accepts podcast reviews. Anyway, back to the content you actually tuned in to listen to. Last time, we talked about how St. Olaf's son, Magnus, was brought back to Norway as king. This wasn't Magnus' own idea, since he was only ten at the time. Instead, powerful Norwegian chieftains hoped to rule the country by manipulating the boy king. It worked for a while, until it didn't, and almost caused a ruinous civil war in Norway. Luckily for everyone involved, Magnus decided to focus his energy on claiming the crown of Denmark instead, and to general surprise, he managed to become king of Denmark. Still, his elevation was challenged by the grandson of Sven Forkbeard, a guy who was also called Sven. Sven and Magnus kept fighting for years, with Sven starting rebellions that Magnus would promptly crush, but without being able to capture or kill Sven. Today, we'll talk about how that vicious circle of rebellions and crushings ended. We'll also put an end to the Viking Age. At least, kind of. Episode 30 the Harsh Ruler. Last time, we left Magnus the Good at the height of power, ruling both Norway and Denmark. But his rule over Denmark would actually not last all that long, only for a few years. You might think that the Danes finally managed to rid themselves of this foreign king and elevated one of their own as King of Denmark. If you do think that, then I'm afraid you're wrong. The Danes did not cause Magnus' downfall. The beginning of the end of King Magnus came one fine day when his uncle Harold showed up unexpectedly. This uncle was St. Olaf's half-brother. They had the same mother but different fathers, so St. Olaf's stepfather was actually Harold's biological father. Harold was much younger than his saintly half-brother had been, but he had fought alongside him at Stiklestad in 1030 when he was only 15 years old. As you know, the battle resulted in defeat and in Olaf's death, but it didn't end too well for Harold either. He was gravely wounded and had to be helped to safety by a man who later was to become the Jarl of Orkney. Harold had to lay low and let his wounds heal while in hiding for a while at a remote farm in the eastern parts of Norway. When he was well enough to travel, he decided that it would be best for him to leave Norway for a while and to seek his fortune somewhere else, preferably far, far away from his homeland that was now ruled by the enemies of his family. He first went to Godariki, where he stayed for a while, fighting for the ruler there, who was a distant relative, more specifically the husband of Harald's dead half-brother's sister-in-law. 
he made a name for himself as a valiant warrior and capable commander, fighting against various tribes that were threatening Gordoriki. But after a few years in Gordoriki, Harald continued on and arrived in Miklagord, aka Constantinople, among non-Vikings. He brought along some 500 loyal men who had joined him during his time in Gordoriki. His plan was to continue his military career in the Byzantine army. The path to Scandinavian military service in Miklagord was well-trodden, and Harald was far from the first exiled Viking to find himself fighting for the Byzantine emperors. In the 1030s, he participated in 18 major battles, and various campaigns brought him all the way to the rivers Euphrates and Tigris in Mesopotamia in the east and Sicily in the west. Thanks to his courage, his strength and his cunning, Harald rose in the ranks and became the commander of the Varangian Guard, that is, the emperor's elite unit of Scandinavian soldiers. In 1041, he led a campaign to put down a rebellion in Bulgaria. Harald not only crushed the rebellion, but then went on to punish the locals so harshly that he became known as the Bulgar Burner. As the commander of the Varangian Guard, Harald was held in high esteem by the Byzantine emperor, but he got to experience firsthand how quickly one can lose the favor of a ruler and what happens when one does. In December 1041, Emperor Michael IV died, and soon Miklagord was rocked by a feud between the new emperor, Michael V, and the powerful dowager empress, Zoe, who had been her husband's co-ruler for many years. I'm not going to get into the details of the power struggle here, but I recommend that if you're interested, you should go and check out the History of Byzantium podcast for an excellent in-depth description of what was going on in Constantinople at the time. In a situation like that, it's easy to become collateral damage, and Harold found himself falling from grace and ending up in prison. We don't know exactly why he was arrested, but there are a number of theories. Some claim that it was discovered that Harold had committed fraud on a massive scale and siphoned off large sums of money that should have gone to the imperial treasury. It is true that Harold had a habit of sending large shipments of silver and other valuables to Godoriki from time to time, and you can't help but to wonder where he came across all that wealth. According to another theory, Harold had the audacity to propose to a young woman in the imperial family, and the dowager empress had him arrested, supposedly in an act of jealous rage, since she wanted to marry Harold herself. A third theory claims that Harold had assaulted a Byzantine noblewoman, whereas the medieval Danish historian Saxo Grammaticus claims that he was arrested for murder. So we don't know for sure if he was a thief, a rapist, or a murderer, or perhaps the innocent victim of Byzantine palace intrigues. We also don't know how he managed to get out of prison, but we do know that it happened during a revolt against the new emperor, Michael V, soon after his ascension to the throne. The Varangian Guard was divided in their loyalties between Emperor Michael and Dowager Empress Zoe, and once he was out of prison, Harold soon became the leader of those supporting Zoe. That was a good call, because Emperor Michael V lost the fight against Zoe, and was deposed and exiled to a monastery. Before he was sent off, though, he was blinded. The sagas claim that it was none other than Harold himself who cut out the eyes of the unfortunate ex-emperor, but we don't know for sure. But it does seem on brand for Harold to do something like that. After Michael V had been dispatched and Zoe was back in charge, Harold decided that he had had enough of Miklagord, 
so he requested leave to be allowed to return home to Norway after 15 years abroad. But the Empress Zoe refused his request, and Harald had to escape the city in secret. He and his retinue of loyal men set out in two ships, but only one of them managed to sneak away. Luckily, Harald was on the ship that did make it, and he eventually reached Gordariki. There, not only did he collect all the riches he had sent from Miklagord over the years, but he also married a local princess called Elizabeth. Of course, no one in Scandinavia was able or willing to pronounce such a weird exotic name, so in Scandinavian sources, she was known as Elisiv. She was the daughter of the ruler of Gordariki and the niece of the king of Sweden. In addition, her siblings married the kings of France and of Hungary and the Byzantine emperor Constantine IX. It's hard to think of a bride who would have been better connected to the various courts of Europe, and Elisiv's connections would serve Harald well in the future. Harald departed Holmgård in 1045 and arrived in the Swedish town of Sigtuna at the end of that year, or possibly in early 1046. According to the sagas, his ship was lying too deep in the water because it was overloaded with silver and other riches. Harald thought it was worth the risk of compromising the seaworthiness of his ship to bring all of his wealth back home, because, like others before him, he planned to use these riches to make himself king of Norway. In Sweden, Harald met with Sven Estridsson, the eternal pretender to the Danish throne, who was living there in exile at King Arnon Jacob's court when he wasn't trying to start a rebellion in Denmark. Harald, Sven and Arnon Jacob decided to join forces to topple Magnus the Good. Afterwards, Harald would take Norway and Sven Denmark. When the weather allowed it, the trio launched a raid against Denmark, aiming at convincing the Danes that Magnus couldn't protect them and didn't deserve to be their king. The next step would no doubt be to do the same in Norway. When Magnus heard what was going on, he started to prepare for war. But he was counseled to reach a settlement with his uncle instead. Harald was too rich and too powerful. There were no guarantees that Magnus would actually win a war against him. So King Magnus decided to swallow his pride, or at least some of it, and agreed to a compromise. He and Harald would be co-rulers of Norway, but not Denmark, which Magnus kept for himself. Also, Harald would have to share half of his treasure with Magnus, which came in handy since he was in desperate need of money at this point. It was also decided that Magnus should have precedence if the two kings were ever to be in the same place at the same time. Magnus should have the best mooring site for his ship, people should greet him first, and if the two kings were to meet up with some other VIP, Magnus should be the one to sit in the middle. During their brief time as co-rulers, they actually only met once, and it almost ended in violence because Harald tried to undermine Magnus's authority as the senior of the two. More likely than not, King Magnus didn't like this power-sharing agreement that he had been forced to consent to. Luckily for him, it wasn't to last. Unfortunately for him, it ended with him dying within a year of making his rich uncle his co-ruler. I've noted before on this show that one of two co-rulers has a tendency to die suspiciously early, but in this particular case, Magnus's death wasn't his uncle's fault at least not according to the surviving historical record, a historical record that might, of course, have been edited more or less heavily by Uncle Harold after Magnus's death. 
During yet another of Sven Estridsen's rebellions, he suffered one of his regular defeats and was retreating back to safety in Sweden with King Magnus in hot pursuit. One version of the story says that Magnus fell from his ship and drowned, whereas another version has his horse falling and throwing Magnus to his death. Either way, Magnus died. No doubt Harald was pleased with the news. Now he wouldn't have to share the title of King of Norway with his nephew. He was far less pleased, however, to learn that he would not inherit Magnus' Danish kingdom as well. None other than Sven Estridsson would from now on be King of Denmark. So in the end, Sven's tenacity had paid off. Harald had no plans on accepting this decision though, and declared that he was mustering an army to go and conquer Denmark immediately. But Einar Thambarskjælfir, that Jarl who had brought Magnus back from Gordariki and made him king, refused to join Harald, quipping that to follow Magnus dead was better than to follow any other king alive. Then he went back to Trøndelag to see to Magnus' funeral. When the influential Jarl Einar refused King Harald's summons, most other Norwegian chieftains stayed away as well. Harald had to put his invasion plans on hold. He was fuming with rage, but had to go back to Norway as well. But that didn't mean that he gave up on his plans to take Denmark. And Jarl Einar had made himself a dangerous enemy. Harald decided that the independent-minded Jarl had to die. So when he next was in Trøndelag, he summoned Einar to a meeting at his local royal residence. And when Einar showed up, King Harald had him killed. To make sure that he'd never more have any problems with Einar and his family, he had Einar's son killed as well. That was the end of the line for the Jarls of Trøndelag. But it didn't mean the end of Harald's troubles, though. Einar's widow wanted revenge, and managed to start a rebellion that nearly cost Harald his hold over Norway. But in the end, King Harald won out, and once he was securely back in charge, he decided that he was going to teach his rebellious subjects a lesson they would never forget. So the king set out on a campaign of burning and killing, completely desolating the rebellious region, not unlike the way he'd punished the Bulgars for rising up against Constantinople. After this, he was given the nickname Harald Hardrada, or Harald the Harsh Ruler. Harald may have gained an unseemly nickname, but he also gained a lot of wealth, confiscating a lot of rich farmland from executed or exiled opponents. Obviously, he was most certainly not called Hardrada to his face. According to early English sources, he was actually called Fairhair. Now, this could be a mistake on the part of the English chroniclers, or spin from Snorri Sturluson who claimed that Harald was a descendant of the original Harald Fairhair in order to boost his credentials. Or, as some modern scholars like to think, there was no previous Harald Fairhair and Harald Hardrada was the original Fairhair and uh, which nickname you used indicated if you were a friend or a foe of the king. This later guy united Norway and that first Harald Fairhair was just a myth or a mistake. And if that is true, then all Norwegian history we've been talking about up until this point needs to be revised and the timeline pushed up more than a century. But that's a minority opinion. Just thought I should mention it to point out how frustratingly little we can actually say that we definitely know about anything that took place in the Viking Age. Anyway, back to Harald Hardrada. Even though King Harald didn't necessarily care that he wasn't popular, he wasn't going to ignore it either. For instance, he set up a personal guard of Icelandic Vikings. He chose Icelanders, 
because they were foreigners and not involved in local Norwegian politics. That way, he hoped that they'd stay loyal to him, no matter what he did, a bit like the Varangian guard guarding the Byzantine emperor without getting involved in local politics in Constantinople. It's a bit ironic, considering Harald's own involvement in the downfall of Michael V, but, you know, whatever. To make extra sure that his Icelandic guard would be loyal to him, King Harald made sure to always grant favourable trading agreements with Icelanders in Norway and aided Iceland when they needed food or other such things. Once the rebellion in Norway had been put down and rebels thoroughly punished, King Harald could get back to trying to become king of Denmark. For almost 20 years, he kept sending raiding party after raiding party to Denmark to harass and plunder. He was always successful in his campaigns. For instance, in 1049, Harald's forces captured Hedeby, the most important town in Denmark at the time. They pillaged and destroyed so thoroughly that Hedeby never really recovered, and when Slavic tribes attacked in 1066, that was the final nail in the coffin for Denmark's dominant urban centre in the Viking Age. But for all his successes and victories, Harald never did manage to conquer Denmark. And the war was expensive. So in the mid-1060s, Harald and Sven met to hammer out a deal. According to the peace agreement, Harald would remain king of Norway and Sven of Denmark. The borders would not be adjusted in either direction and no one would have to pay compensation or tribute to anyone else. Even though he hadn't been able to secure his rule over Denmark, Harald still hadn't given up his ambition of expanding his control over additional lands, and so he now turned his thoughts to England. Before he died, Magnus the Good had also wanted to become king of England. Technically, Hardeknut had been the king of England too when he and Magnus made their deal. Hardeknut even died in England, remember? So Magnus had decided that he was the rightful heir to the English crown as well. And he had aimed at reuniting the Viking Empire of Sven Forkbeard and Knut the Great, but ruled by Norway this time. Nothing had come of Magnus's plans since he went ahead and died and all that. But now Harald Hardrada was starting to think that since he was Magnus's rightful heir and Magnus was the rightful heir of Hardeknut, then Harald should really be the king of England. But England hadn't been left leaderless all this time since Hardeknut died. The English had gotten around to find themselves a new king, and he wasn't particularly keen on stepping down or to recognize the king of Norway as his superior just because some silly deal that Magnus had once made with Hardeknut. What made Harald Hardrada take an interest in England at this particular point in time wasn't merely the fact that seemingly endless war with Sven Estridsson in Denmark had ended, but also, and perhaps primarily, the fact that the King of England, a certain Edward the Confessor, Hardeknut's half-brother through his mother, Emma of Normandy, had just died. He had ruled England ever since Hardeknut's sudden death at that feast back in 1042, and so he had been king for almost a quarter of a century. But now, in January 1066, Edward was dead and the English throne was once again up for grabs since the dead king never had any children. In other words, it was a good time to remind everyone that the English crown really should be Harald Hardrada's, at least in Harald's own humble opinion. Edward the Confessor had never outlined who he wanted to succeed him as King of England. He slipped into a coma in late 1065, and only regained consciousness for a brief moment before he eventually died on January 5th, 1066. But even though the moment was brief, 
he managed to point to his brother-in-law, Harold Godwinson, and asking that he protect the kingdom. No further explanation was given, but Harold Godwinson himself took it to mean that he should now be king. The English nobility went ahead and elected him king and crowned him the very next day. We don't know for sure what the hurry was all about. Maybe Harold Godwinson just thought that it was convenient to get the coronation out of the way since all the noblemen was gathered anyway. Or perhaps he knew that he wasn't the only one with claims to the crown and he wanted to establish facts on the ground. Either way, the fact that Harold Godwinson was elected and crowned didn't stop Harold Hardrada of Norway from pushing his own claim to the English crown. So already a few months later, Harold Hardrada started to gather a fleet in preparation for his invasion of England. All through the summer of 1066, his fleet grew at the meeting point in the Songnefjord on the Norwegian west coast. By the beginning of September, Harald Hardrada set out to sea with perhaps as many as 300 longships. With him on his ship was his well-connected wife Elisiv, his daughters and his son Olav. Harald left another son, Magnus, in charge of Norway. One of the last things Harald did before departing was to open St. Olav's coffin and cut his nails and hair. By this time, Olav had been dead for 35 years, but according to Harald, his half-brother's perfectly preserved body still needed a manicure. After he was done, he locked the coffin again and threw the key in the river where it was lost forever. The coffin was never opened again. The Norwegian fleet sailed to England via the Norwegian possessions of Shetland and Orkney, where they picked up additional troops. Also the King of Scotland, Malcolm III, contributed some 2,000 soldiers to the Norwegian army. Harold and his fleet eventually reached England and started to plunder the east coast of Northumbria. At first, they met no organised resistance, but when they reached Scarborough, the locals there refused to surrender without a fight. They may have saved their pride, but not their town. Harold burned Scarborough to the ground, and as soon as the news spread, all other Northumbrian towns surrendered as soon as the Norwegians approached. The invaders continued down the coast until they reached the River Humber. There, they turned inland, aiming for the old capital of Scandinavian-controlled Northumbria, Jorvik, or York, as the English called the town. They couldn't sail all the way to Jorvik, so they had to leave their ships in Rickall, which they did on September 20th. By now, news of the invasion had spread throughout the kingdom, and an English army under the leadership of the Earls of Northumbria and Mercia set out to stop the Norwegians as they marched northward in the direction of York. The two sides met some three kilometres outside of the city at Fulford. The battle there was an unmitigated disaster for the English, and now nothing stood between Harald Hardrada and the old Viking centre Jorvik. The city surrendered to Harald Hardrada on September 24th, and it was decided that Harald would enter the city the following day. In the meantime, the Norwegians retired to their camp at Rickhall, where their ships were. Harald Hardrada must no doubt have been mighty pleased with himself and the progress of his invasion so far. But unbeknownst to everyone involved, or at least to the Norwegians, Harold Godwinson and the rest of the English army were fast approaching. They actually reached York not long after the city had surrendered to the Norwegians, but since it was still undefended, they could just take it and prepare to attack the following morning. So the following day, Harold Hardrada set out for York thinking he was going there to settle the way the city was going to be governed under his rule. 
He only took about two-thirds of his army with him. The rest of the soldiers remained by the ships, together with all of the Norwegians' heavy armor. There was no point in putting on all that uncomfortable gear when they were just going to take over Jorvik, unopposed anyway. But as the Norwegians reached Stamford Bridge, the mood among the troops under Harald's banner, incidentally called the Land Waster, started to shift. Suddenly they saw a massive army approaching from the opposite direction, an army that was prepared and ready for battle. Harald Hardrada realized that the English king had arrived and that they were in trouble, so he sent word to the rest of the troops back at the ships to gear up and join them at Stamford Bridge, ASAP. Soon the battle began. Harald Hardrada moved across the battlefield, always seeking out the most dangerous and fiercest fights, boosting the morale of his warriors with his personal courage. It may have been courageous, but not very prudent, since he, just like everyone else, had left his armour back at their chips. And sure enough, eventually he was hit by an arrow and fell. But even though their king was dead, the Norwegians continued to fight ferociously. When the reinforcements eventually arrived from the ships, the morale of the Norwegian side surged, and at one point it seemed like the English line was faltering and the Norwegians were on the brink of victory. But the warriors who had hurried up from the ships were exhausted, and ultimately they couldn't do much. When their commander was killed as well, many of the men just fled the battlefield. Those who stayed and fought were slain, almost to a man. According to an English chronicler, bones of the fallen could still be found on the battlefield half a century later. The Battle of Stamford Bridge on September 25th, 1066, is often considered the end of the Viking Age, and Harald Hardrada is seen as the last Viking king of Norway. Almost his whole army was annihilated, and the surviving Norwegians who made it back to Norway could fit in less than 25 ships, a far cry from the almost 300 that had set out from the Sognefjord only a few weeks earlier. One of those who escaped back to Norway was Olav, Harald Hardrada's son, and he managed to bring his father's corpse with him as well. With his resounding triumph at Stamford Bridge, Harald Godwinson managed to free England from the threat of further Viking invasions for the rest of his reign. Unfortunately for King Harald Godwinson, that reign would come to an abrupt end only 19 days later. You see, while Harald Godwinson was busy dealing with a Viking invasion in Northumbria, the Duke of Normandy, William the Bastard, later known by the somewhat more flattering nickname William the Conqueror, crossed the English Channel and landed with his invasion army on the south coast of England. Just like Harald Hardrada, William considered himself the rightful heir to the throne of England thanks to his familial connection to Emma of Normandy, the mother of Edward the Confessor. So Harold Godwinson and his men didn't get to enjoy their victory very long, or rest after their march through England and battle against the Vikings. Instead of recuperating, they had to turn around and march all the way back south again to repulse this new invader. But it turned out that this was too much for Godwinson and his army. They met William and his Normans at Hastings on October 14, 1066. Even though the English fought bravely and caused the invaders heavy casualties, they were defeated in the end. Later historians have often pointed out that their fatigue after an exhausting few weeks was an important factor in the Normans winning the day at Hastings. I'm sure that the fact that Harold Godwinson was shot in the eye and died also played a part in the English defeat. It was all downhill from there for Anglo-Saxon England. 
In December, William had conquered the whole country and he was crowned King of England in London on Christmas Day 1066. And, as I've noted before on the show, the current British monarch is a descendant of William the Conqueror, who, in turn, was the descendant of Vikings who had settled on the southern shore of the English Channel with Rollo some 150 years before the conquest of England. So, in a roundabout way, the Scandinavians won anyway, even though Harald Hardrada lost and was killed at Stamford Bridge. Next time, we'll have a look at the political ramifications of Harald Hardrada's death back in Scandinavia. His sons established themselves as co-rulers for a while, until one of them, as per usual, died prematurely. The survivor had to deal with renewed attempts of a hostile takeover from the usual suspect, the King of Denmark. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Scandinavian History Podcast. If you did, please spread the word at the office, at the gym, or anywhere else you hang out with people interested in Scandinavian history. Also, please consider leaving a favorable review and a constellation of five bright stars on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. This is an excellent way to attract new listeners and to put a smile on my face. Another good way to support the show and to dig a little deeper into Old Norse mythology is to go to Amazon or Kindle and purchase my book, Thor, Odin, Loki and the Old Norse Myths. Of course, I also recommend checking out the Scandinavian History Podcast Facebook page. If you haven't already, then please go to facebook.com slash Scandinavian History Podcast. In addition, you can also follow me and send me messages on Twitter at Schenkman, S-H-A-I-N-K-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you.